Job chapter 38. So we're going to start and finish, hopefully, Lord willing, and then into chapter 39 this morning. We have studied all kinds of things about the physical world, but now we get to go to the zoo, if you don't mind, or travel to the ancient Near East anyway and see some pretty wild animals. But at the end of uh, chapter 38, our Lord has been speaking, Yahweh has been speaking to Job and speaking things that are just beyond his ken. K-E-N, you know that word, knowledge, his ability to understand or reason. Job just didn't didn't know about these things, which is interesting because Job pretty much had it all figured out, right? He had he had a, he had God pegged to the wall, said, "God, you have wronged me. You have done things that are wicked and evil, and so uh, I have reason to find fault with you. And you better answer me. You better show up and either condemn me, which I know you can't because I'm innocent, or acquit me and prove me innocent before all the people that think that I'm a bad person because of all this suffering that's befallen me." And so God appears. And says, okay, Job, you gird yourself up, gird your loins up, and answer me like a man. Here, I'm going to answer, I'm going to ask you these questions, and you answer me if you can. Well, we haven't heard a word out of Job, have we, since the end of chapter 31. He didn't answer Elihu and all of his statements and corrections and so forth, and doesn't answer the Lord until we'll see it in chapter 40. And then again in chapter 42, he does have a word, and and thankfully, it's kind of a step down off of his high horse, off of his pedestal, off of his own self-aggrandizement or self-importance, humbling himself a little bit the first time, and then absolutely just saying, I've got nothing. I, I spoke wrongly. I maligned you. I, I did things that where I spoke just out of turn. And it's a forgiving kind of a uh, confession that Job will ultimately offer to the Lord. But here, God is speaking about so many things. He's asking these questions as we've looked at, questions that God asked Job in the course of uh, from 38 to 41. Uh, all these kind of things. Can you? Do you have the ability? Do you have the wisdom? Do you have the knowledge? Do you have the experience? Will you do this? Do you have the intention of doing this? Job, you've got everything figured out. So how is it? Is it by your command? Is it by your word? Did you think of this idea? Job, certainly you have an answer to all these things because you are impugning, you're accusing me of wrongdoing, not just in the moral realm, causing suffering, but in the physical realm as well. You think that I'm mismanaging the universe? Well, let me just ask you about these things. And God is not, I don't think he's uh, sarcastic. I don't think he's mocking him so much in a negative way. I think he is humbling him. Job, you don't know what you're talking about. In fact, you don't even know what you don't know about things, about the universe, the foundation of the earth, the, the water, the sea, the, the precipitation, the hail, the snow, the stars, the sun. You don't. You just don't know about these things. Job, Take a break. Take a breather. Just relax. I've got this under control. And by the way, I can care for you as well. These depictions, these descriptions of animals here in chapters, at the end of chapter 38 and chapter 39, shows God's, shows a bunch of things about God. He is so creative, so diverse. Wow, he thought of the, of the lion and the raven and the ibex and the deer and all these different animals, all the different varieties of animals, whether mammals, on earth, you know, four-footed, two-footed, beaked. He um, doesn't really talk about fish so much, but he, talk, and he, but he talks about all kind of animals, big and large and small, and his care for them, his interest in them, his concern for them, his action on their behalf. God is so interested in zoology. He made it all. And by the way, when it was first created, he said, it's good. This is really good. This stuff that I just made, wonderful. Physical world, yes, absolutely, exactly what I wanted. The animal world, yes. Human life, exactly, very good. So what happened? 
Well, it's still good. God delights in it. God loves his creation. There is the curse. There is the whole issue of disobedience and rebellion. But even in that, God uses everything about our experience in this creation for his glory, to accomplish his will and his purposes. We have seen kind of in a big picture role that in chapters 38 and 39, God speaks about his omniscience. He just knows everything. Everything. I mean, we, we, it's accused, I guess it's spoken of rather in jest that you, you have forgotten more than you've ever learned, which kind of defeats the purpose. You, sometimes you just don't, you don't know what you have learned. You forget it. You, you while well, you write things down, you can go back and look. God never has to write anything down. He knows everything. He doesn't have to discover. He doesn't have to study these things, have to research, you know, go to the library. God wrote the library. God wrote it for our sakes so that we would say, wow, this, and we give glory to God. God shows himself and proves himself just on display over all these different things. His omniscience knows every possible thing about every possible thing because everything is created by his mind. You think, why did God do it that way? Why did God make that bird this way? I mean, a flightless bird, an ostrich, what's that about? Well, God in his wisdom and his knowledge made it exactly how he wanted it to be. In chapters 40 and 41, he's going to still, these are kind of interrelated ideas. Omniscience, his, his knowledge, and his all-powerfulness, his omnipres, omnipotence, omnipotence, omnipotence depending on where you put the emphasis on that syllable. But he is all-knowing and all-powerful. He can do all kinds of things. We'll see that somewhat on display here in, in these uh, texts about animals. So in verse 39 of chapter 38, Can you hunt the prey for the lion or fulfill the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? Who prepares for the raven its provision when its young cry for help to God and wander about without food? God is speaking about a lion... I'm going to have a few pictures on the screen just to help you think, because you all haven't seen a lion lately, I don't suppose. Not here, unless you're one of those folks that talk about lions in the open square and all that kind of thing, and you don't want to go out and do your work. That's a proverb. Don't do it. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Wait a minute. Why should you hunt prey for the lion? Can't they do it their own selves? Aren't they good at that? Well, God says, can you, Job, and all your great understanding of the universe and the creation, do you take thought? For the lion, when they're trying to go find lunch, not just for themselves, but for their little little baby cubs. You know, as we go through this, this text, you've seen nature shows, I'm sure. And nature shows always talk about the beauty, the little babies and everything. And then it almost cuts to the mama on the prowl trying to find some, I don't know, some animal to eat for herself and then to care, carry back for the, uh, the babes because you can't have babes without food. And by the way, nature shows always show the, the prey, the predator, and we always rejoice, yay, the penguin got away. But wait a minute, then how's the, the seal, the, what do you call it, the lion seal, leopard seal, that's the one. How's that going to eat? How's it going to care? So there is this give and take, this death and life and all this whole, what is it called? A circle of life is going on. And so God says, hey, do you hunt the prey for the lion or fulfill the appetite of the young lions? Do you even concern yourself with that? I do. I take concern for them. I'm looking for animals for these lions to eat. Now, there's an example of a lion who didn't like meat. There was It died several years ago, possibly because it didn't like meat. No, it, it liked vegetation. It likes vegetables. It was it, animal. Excuse me. Lions are carnivores. They like flesh. And so going after this elephant, for example. But there was this lion that liked to eat lettuce and stuff. 
and uh, go figure. But typically, they need somebody, something to die. And sometimes they hunt in packs, sometimes they hunt individually, sometimes they go after the big game, sometimes they don't. But God takes notice of them, and he notices when they are crouching in their dens, or just they're, they're kind of lying in ambush, they're waiting for some, uh, some beast, something that they would, you know, trip their fancy and say, that, I'd eat that. And they go and, and do it. And it's for the benefit of these little babes. God is concerned for the lions, the king of the beast, right? What, what is this about? Well, God is concerned. He is active. He is thoughtful. And he is willing, by the way, for this lion and lion family to eat, something has to die. Is that okay? Well, in God's plan, yes, God provided these animals in, in this cursed situation, right? Before the fall, they didn't eat, eat meat. They didn't eat themselves. They ate vegetation. That's the day coming in the future. But in this present age, God has provided death for life. Somebody has to die for something else to live. And he says, okay, I'm going to do it. They've got to have a, a part in this as well. They have to crouch. They have to ambush. You know, they have to lay, lie in wait in their lair. And then they have to jump out and, and catch it and bring it home and, and everything's happy. He goes, God goes from speaking about a lion into verse 41, talking about ravens. And you think, what's the connection between lions and ravens? Well, ravens are opportunistic. They are carrion, which is dead animals. In other words, lions will go out and kill it. And then the ravens say, well, thank you very much. I think I'll have some. And they kind of pick the bones clean and they do all this kind of stuff. One thing about ravens' beaks is that they're a little bit different than falcons. We're going to see falcons at the end of this, end of chapter 39 that falcons have a curved beak and sharp talons, and they can rip and tear the hide and get right down to this thing. The ravens don't have that capability. They can get and, and tear and do stuff, but only after it's, it's been opened up, the wound and so forth. And so ravens a lot of times follow after lions in the killing and the, and the feeding of, of these animals. And so God knows this. He, he said that's what they're going to do. God prepares for the raven its provision when it's young, cry for help to God and wander about without food. And we don't often think about the ravens. Why should we think about ravens? They can go take care of themselves. Well, God says, I, I take care of them. I'm very interested in them. And he is interested in how uh, we should trust God in that regard. For example, our Lord Jesus also refers to ra ravens in Luke 12 and verse 24. He says, consider the ravens. Okay, let's think about ravens. There's a good raven. Here's another picture of a raven feeding its babes. They neither sow nor reap. They don't plant anything and they don't harvest anything, but how do they eat then? They have no storeroom nor bar barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. God takes thought of ravens. These kind of just scavengers, it's kind of, they, they're just opportunistic. They'll eat this, they'll eat that. They're kind of indiscriminate. Whatever uh, thinks that they think that will suit them or their babes, they will take care of it. God celebrates the fact that he cares for his animals, his creatures. He gives, Psalm 147 verse 9 says, he gives to the animal its food and to the young ravens, or the sons of a raven, which call out. Who do they call out to? Notice it said in verse 41 here, it's young, cry out for help to God. And you think, hmm, how do they do that? Because God pays attention. It's not that they have thought of of, oh, I'm, I'm going to call to God kind of thing. But God is listening. God is listening to his beast. And he says, okay, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to make sure that your your mama, your daddy goes out and, and finds where that lion just got the prey that I provided for her. And God is in control. He is so attentive to his, his creation. 
breaking into 39. By the way, this is one of those situations where you celebrate or just mourn, perhaps, the fact that chapter divisions and versification of the scriptures, what? Why did they do it this way? Why didn't we have chapter 39 start in verse 39 so that for whatever reason, God is speaking about animals. He has a big change of topic between verses 38 and 39 as written. Chapters and verses are not inspired. They are added later. We're added later. And we are thankful because we can all turn to Job 39 verse 1, which says, Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you keep watch over the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time they give birth? They kneel down, they bring forth their young, they send out their labor pains. Their children become strong, they grow up in the open field. They leave and do not return to them. God moves from talking about lions and ravens, those who kind of eat on animals like this ibex, this mountain goat, and he says, he says, hey, these mountain goats have to live too, and I care for them. Do you pay any attention? Do you, pay, do you know the time the mountains go, mountain goats give birth? Now, these are the mountain goats. These are wild animals. Did Job know something about goats, sheep, ox, camels? He knew about livestock. This was his trade. I mean, he had other businesses as well. But he knew, and he would calculate, right? Okay, this, you know, this is the, the calving time, or this this is what's going on here. We need to get these together. He, he That was part of his business. He knew, and he paid much attention to it. Didn't care about the mountain goats. What are they they're out there. I have no benefit from them. They don't help me at all. They're out there. They're kind of remote. They're kind of nice to look at every now and again, but they contribute nothing to my life. But God cares for them. They don't have any benefit to God. They do have a benefit to God. Why? Because he delights in his creation. He says it's really good. I like it. And he is going to care for it. Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? He's concerned about these these little babes, these little little uh, ibexim, these little mountain goats that are out there out in the in the wilderness, out in the often in the desert land, arid, uh, not much vegetation and so forth. But he says, I care for them. I am counting. I am numbering the months they fulfill. And I know. Job doesn't. You don't know anything about this. You don't know the time they give birth. They kneel down. They bring forth their young. They send out their labor pains. These God paying attention. It's not even that. Oh, that's gross. And that no. He says. I'm, and I know the time. I know the process. This is wonderful. It's God's idea. This whole thing about natural reproduction. It's, it's his, his idea. It's good. And he pays much attention to it. And he is so attentive to the needs of these little baby goats out there to, uh, help them become strong. Verse four says they, their children become strong. They grow up in the open field. Wait a minute. They don't have a manger. They don't have a little stable they can go into at night. No. They're out there on the side of a cliff. And they're just doing all kinds of stuff. And you see them perched. How did they even get there? And you have to go out and see some video or just go to uh, Masada, go to, down to the Dead Sea and, and look for these, and Getty especially. Go see some Ibex down there. And how did? where are they coming from? And how did they even, just amazing, a little beast. And then you see their little, their little, um, little goats. They leave and do not return to them. Now, this is the joy, but also the trepidation for uh, parents who have children right on that verge of, of launching into adulthood. And it, it fills us with very great hope and, and, uh, and pleasure and, and also a little bit of anxiety. You see this goat jumping up. Where are they going? What are they doing? Do they even know what, what in the world? And so trusting God, because this is part of the natural course of life. They, they're, they're leaving and they do not return to them. I can't help but uh, mention my father-in-law 
would often say that children children grew up and they drive away in Volkswagens and they return in buses with grandchildren and move in. And so, but here these goats are they're going out and they're doing their own lives. God also talks about these wild donkeys, not the donkeys that Job had. He had five hundred female donkeys. What about these wild donkeys? Does Job have concern for them? God does. Verse 5 says, Who who sent out the wild donkey free, and who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? For whom I have set the desert plain as a home, and the salt land as his dwelling place. He laughs at the tumult of the city, the shoutings of the driver. He does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture and searches after every green thing. Verse 5 says, Who, God is asking, Who is the one who set the wild donkey free? Well, that assumes then that, oh, so these, these are formerly domesticated uh, donkeys that have gone feral, gone wild. No, no. These are wild donkeys. They've always been wild donkeys. Nobody set them free. Nobody loosed the bonds because they never had any bonds. They, they're untamable. They're beyond any kind of domestication. They are just, they're just out there doing their own thing. God delights in that. Now, he, he's, and he can talk about the wild oxen here in just a moment, but he's talking about this wild donkey, and he says, you, Job, you think that, look, if, if this donkey can't be any benefit to me, if I can't, you know, harness that donkey to a cart or put some burdens on it or, or do whatever, then I, I, it means nothing to me. I don't care anything about it. God says, I care for it. It's under my jurisdiction, under my care, my, my, uh, my discretion in this way and to care for him and her. Job, as it said back in chapter 1, he had 500 female donkeys. He was so much concerned about his own livestock, but not at all for those outside. Verse 6 says, whom ha For whom I have set the desert plain as a home. Why the desert plain? Why the salt land as his dwelling place? What's he, what's he going to benefit from out there? I mean, that's just, there's not much living out there. But that's where God said that's where these animals are going to live. They're going to prosper, going to live all their lives out there, a desert plain, a place that is not uh, conducive to life, and yet, even so, God can provide and does provide much for them to uh, benefit. They are wandering. They're just they're just going all over the place. Uh, they are, uh, one person says, temperamentally unsuitable for domestication. Just can't get them. They just can't teach them anything. They're out there doing their own thing. Verse 7 says, he laughs. Laughs in a laugh in the scriptures can be a joyful thing. It can also be a a joyful kind of a condescending kind of a thing, uh, laughing in, in mockery or or uh, uh, embarrassment or, or shame at somebody. He's laughing at the tumult of the city. All those things that are going on down there. Uh, he care, he cares not because he's out in the wild. He's doing his own thing. He laughs at the tumult of the city. He doesn't hear the shouts of the driver. Doesn't pay any attention to them. No, he's not going to get anything out of me. The donkey is out there frolicking about in the wasteland, saying, this is where I want to be. He explores the mountains for his pasture and searches after every green thing. In other words, okay, he likes his freedom. He likes the, the desolation of the place, likes those drivers and all the, the stuff, the busyness of the city down there, and he's out in his own thing. But there's a little sacrifice. He, have to, he has to hunt for vegetation. He has to... Rome. He has to wander. He likes to wander, but he has to wander to get the food that he needs. He searches after every green thing. In other words, any green thing, whatever he can find, whatever she can find, that's what he's going to eat. And yet God provides for that donkey. Why is God saying all these things? To show his omniscience, to show his care, his love, his compassion, to show Job 
you you think you're the most compassionate person out there. You think you're the most just person. You think that you know everything. You search out the matters that you don't know about. You you you've barely scratched the surface of my world. Let me show you just a little bit more of my world. Do you remember? And this this, this is all these questions, all these these statements about God's power, His wisdom, His His, his uh, compassion, and so forth. If you back up to Job 31, recitation, that avowal or disavowal, you know, I've never done this, I've always done this, this is my life, that I've always cared for the orphan, the widow, I've always sought justice, you know, all these things that he was celebrating about his own life. When did Job's thoughts become so clouded with his own righteousness and not with the glory of God, not with the wisdom of God, not with the power of God? There's a problem between Job chapters 1 and 2 when you know, Job celebrates God's wisdom, his discretion, his power for him to give and take and so forth. But then, ouch, this hurts. My family's gone. My livestock's gone. My health is gone. And this is horrible. And then my friends came. And they've, they're not, they're worthless physicians. Nothing. Just assuming that I'm wicked. And where is God? We used to have these wonderful conversations. And so he's finding fault with God. And, and God says, you don't know enough to find fault with me. There's nothing the fault finder can find fault with me. Who is this who contends with the Almighty? We'll see that in, in chapter 40 uh, next week, Lord willing. So God is answering Job's self-righteousness with a true statement of righteousness about his own self. God himself is righteous and he cares for his, his creation. Verse 9 and following talks about another animal. An animal that we don't see much anymore. Well, we don't see it at all. I think what he's referring to has expired and gone extinct. And we'll talk about another translation that you perhaps have before you. Verse 9 says, Will the wild ox consent to serve you, or will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his power is great and leave your labor to him? Will you believe him that he'll return your seed of grain and gather it from your threshing floor? This wild ox, and some translations perhaps has unicorn, maybe if the King James, or if you have an old Wycliffe translation, which talks about a unicorn, maybe uh, buffalo, wild bull, um, New American Standard talked about that. Maybe your translation even talks about a rhinoceros, a, a, um, a rhinoceros, which is a different category of animal entirely. I think he's talking, God is talking about a wild ox, something in the bovine family, an ancestor of all of our modern uh, uh, cows and bulls and all that kind of thing. He's talking about possibly a beast that looks something like this. An aurochs, it's called. A wild, wild ox. Now, you notice kind of the figure of a man right over there, a full-grown man. The aurochs, thankfully, is extinct. The last one died in 1627. At least that documented uh, life of that beast was in 1627. At its withers, at its shoulder, six feet tall. The translations that talk about unicorn, that comes out of the, the Septuagint version, which does have a, a word that means unicorn, single-horned person. Rhinoceros also comes from, from ancient Greek, but it's, it comes from the Vulgate, rather. The Latin translation, 250 or so AD, uh, after Christ. And so we see some different translations trying to figure out, but this is a beast that had two horns, the horns themselves about four and a half feet from tip to tip. I mean, wide thing, six feet tall, maybe 10 feet long, 3,000 pounds, just a huge animal. It was a favorite animal 
to be hunted and, and exploited, I suppose, by the rich and the famous in the ancient world. Pharaohs and kings and so forth loved to hunt these things. There's reports of, of one hunting expedition that killed 70-some aurochs in one single hunt. What are they doing that for? Just because they wanted to. But this is a wild beast. And God says, look, do you suppose that that's going to consent to serve you? Do you think that's, that's going to, okay, I'll follow you, Job. Again, this is not something extraordinary to Job. He had what? How many ox did he have? He had like a lot. 500. 500 pairs of oxen, uh, Job chapter 1 speaks about. And so he, he knows a thing about thing or two about oxen. But what about this wild ox? Job, have you ever had one of those in your, in your uh, farm? You're doing different things. Do you think he's going to serve you? Is he going to spend the night at your manger? It's kind of one of those things that you know, he's and these horns, they're kind of curved there. They, they went more forward than out. And so that means kind of like he's got, you know, he's double loaded. He can pick two guys up at once and just toss them like nothing. Do you suppose he's going to just spend the night at your manger? Do you think he's going to move right in and say, this is a nice place. I like it. I think I'll stay here. No. And whatever fence or gate or bars you put to try to contain him, he's going to walk right through it, trample it down. Do you think that's going to happen? Verse 10 says, can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes? And there's different ways to translate that, I suppose. But the idea is, can you, can you harness his great power? I mean, man, if you could get some of that power for good purposes, for constructive purposes, rather than destruction and just ugh, fear, that'd be wonderful. But God says, no. Job, you ever try that? And all your, you know, you're, you've been around the, the block a while. You've seen all these different animals. Can you do that, wild ox? Will he harrow the valleys after you? In other words, the, the harrowing is different than plowing. Plowing is something where the beast is in front of you, the farmer's behind with the plow trying to get things up and turning over the soil. Harrowing is where the, the ox or the, well, ox, domesticated, or in this case, potentially a wild ox, is walking behind you while that ox is pulling some kind of a thing that breaks up the clods of the soil, makes it nice for, for planting. Would you want to lead a wild ox behind you with those pointed things, you know, going right after you? And I mean, he can pick you up and talk, he can trample you. you. Job, are you going to do that? You know all about these oxen, right? Do you think you're going to do this? Verse 11, will you trust him because his power is great and leave your labor to him? Oh, I can trust you, Mr. Arox, Miss Arox. I think it'll be fine. I'm going to trust you to do all my work because you've got all this power. No, verse 12 says, will you believe him that he will return your grain of seed or translate it differently? Will you believe him that he's going to come back to you, that he's going to do fulfill his responsibilities? Well, you can't trust that. Do you think that he's going to uh, allow you to gather from the threshing floor your grain? You know, the, you see oxen to trample down the grain to separate the the the, the stalk and the, the kernel or the uh, the chaff around the the kernel, the, the beans, grains that you want to harvest out, these oxen would travel around and they would eat it. They would trample it. it would, there'd be no benefit. You wouldn't, Job, you wouldn't think of harvesting, harnessing rather, the power of the wild ox. And they wouldn't consent anyway. So it's not like, you ought to try it, Job. Don't try it, Job. You can't do it. He's beyond your power, beyond your knowledge, beyond anything that you would possibly benefit from. And God made it for his own glory. It's tremendous. He he loved that wild ox. Maybe there's one still around the world, but probably the last one died about 400 years ago. He goes on and talks about an ostrich. Oh man, ostriches are just uh, a sight to behold. Verse 13, the ostrich's wings flap joyously, but are they the pinion and plumage of, the of a stork? For she leaves her eggs to the earth 
and warms them in the dust, and she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a beast of the field may trample them. She treats her children cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor be empty, she's without dread. God, God has made her forget wisdom she, he has, and has not given her a share of understanding. When she raises herself on high, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Now, these ostriches are the largest birds, I mean, by far, huge animals, just tremendous size, tremendous shape, tremendous uh, glory, I guess you'd say. I mean, an ostrich has glory. It is uh, quite interesting to see, wow, these things can weigh up to 330 pounds. I mean, just huge birds. The tallest one can be about nine feet tall. The females are a bit shorter, but nine feet tall, mostly legs and neck. I mean, you, wow, what a, what a tremendous proportion that God has put into that ostrich. It is the largest living bird. But wait a minute. With all that beauty, with all that birdiness, with all those beautiful uh, feathers and, and pinions, it can't fly. It cannot fly at all. It, what in the world is this bird that cannot fly? I mean, even penguins can fly, well, in the water, I suppose. But the ostrich, what good is that? Why did God make the, the ostrich? Well, for his own glory, for his own delight. He says, I'm going to make that. And it was so. And here it is, this beautiful ostrich. God speaks about this thing. He says, I mean, the ostrich, he, even though there's no hope that he's ever going to take off off, this, off the land, he just flaps his wings all over the place. And he does a lot, she, also for balance as the, as the beast is running. But there's no hope. There's no expectation. I don't think any ostrich thought he or she was going to fly. Verse 13 is hard to translate. Maybe I mean, I, I read it in this translation, but your translation may say something different. Even that last word talking about a stork, maybe you have love in there. Well, there's reason why that can be roots of Hebrew words. And, so, and this is old Hebrew, so it's kind of hard to understand. It seems like God is comparing it. it. Looks like a beautiful bird. Looks like it can fly distance and all this kind of stuff. But it's got nothing. It, it it looks grand, but it it's only for show, and it doesn't have any kind, anything like the the pinion. The it's talking about the the different kind of feathers that birds have to help them fly and get uh, airborne. Seems like the ostrich would have it, but they don't, not at all. But then he focuses on child rearing, child bearing. Verse fourteen: She leaves her eggs um, to the earth and warms them in the dust. This animal, this wise, I mean, it's not a wise bird. This bird puts the eggs right on the ground. Okay, the males do, I mean, typical male thing. I've got this covered, honey. I'll take care of this. Scratches out the grass a little bit, kind of makes a little indent. So there you go, honey. That's the safest thing I can. Oh, thanks, dear. And he lays those eggs right down in there. They lay about, I think it's from eight or ten um, eggs over the course of, of a few days. It takes a little bit of time to get all those down. But these birds live in communities. So it could be up to 50 birds all together, and they typically put their eggs together in one little little place. Now, bird, these ostriches, as it's indicated here, uh, they, they put them right down to the earth, warms them in the dust. It's typically at night. Uh, there's a feathering or a coloration difference between male ostriches and female. The males are black. The females are brown. The males sit on or lie on the eggs at night with their wings kind of spread out. The black on the white covers them at, in, the, in the shade or in the darkness of night, whereas the females with their brown will cover them during the day because their brown covering fits in with the surroundings, the, gr the green and the brown and so forth, and they will cover them. Usually, though, as it says here, God, God knows, because we've got to learn from him. They, she warms them in the dust. What the 
female does usually is to protect them, to regulate, because they're going to get overheated in the in the sun, because they're right there. They're, they they she covers them not to keep them warm, but to keep them a little bit cool, just to regulate the temperature a little bit. She warms them in the dust, and she forgets that a foot may crush them. Now the the shell of an ostrich egg is about a quarter inch, and you could a person, adult person, could probably stand on one without breaking it, and yet. Well, what about some of those other beasts that we can learn about? What that wild ox, if he came along, crash? Especially when they're all together like this, it would be a problem. And she forgets that a foot may crush him. Why don't you make a nest up in the tree? Oh, I forgot. You can't climb. Okay, you can't even climb up there. You can reach. Why don't you? Well, there's a certain mechanical problem that you can't get birds or, or eggs up in the tree. So got to do what you can. Well, in that community of ostriches, there's usually a leader, male leader, female leader, and that female also going to lay eggs, but she says, I want my eggs to have the advantage. And for all these other eggs that are coming in there, she pushes them out. She says, I don't want those. I want my eggs to be protected. And so these other eggs are just pushed out to the side, and she forgets about these things. And the other females are saying, well, I guess I would just kind of go with the flow here. Ma, boss, you know, she's got things going, and so I can't. Uh, step in the place. She forgets that a foot may crush them or a beast of the field may trample them. She treats her children cruelly as if they were not hers. Well, definitely for that boss hen, she's not, doesn't care anything about them. But even the ones that say, hey, that's my baby over there. And they know, the females still know which is their egg, and they do take some concern for it. Verse 16 says they she treats her children cruelly, not so much after they're born, because they're very protective, very much uh, attentive to that thing. Some people accuse ostriches of, of, well, they run their opposite direction. When some predator comes in wanting to taste, take this uh, this baby chick, the baby ostrich, well, it's the ostriches, adult ostriches, trying to lead the predator away. Go after the big game, not the small little thing. A little hors d'oeuvre versus a meal. And so... It's, it seems like they're doing this. Some people say they bury their heads in the sand. They don't. They don't bury their heads in the sand. That's not in the scriptures. It's not in their, in their instinct. By the way, it says here in verse uh, seventeen, God has made her forget wisdom, not given her a share of understanding. All animals have instinct. All have. All animals have information that they operate on. Even we're talk, talk about the falcon here in just a moment, the migratory path. Did, did you tell that falcon what to do? Did you tell the lions what to eat? Did you tell the donkey where to find the green grass? No, but they know because God put that wisdom in it. Whatever measure of wisdom, whatever information, whatever programming God put into ostriches, is not very much. I think their eyes, I mean, you look at their eyes, their eyes are bigger than their brains, which is isn't... By the way, I think, I think I'm not mistaking this, that even though this egg is the largest egg of all birds, it's the smallest egg in relation to where'd it come from, the mama. I mean, chicken eggs are pretty big compared to the size of a chicken, but an ostrich egg, which is like six feet, six, six inches uh, across that way, nine inches this way, long ways, an oval, compared to the mama, it's pretty small things. And yet God says, that's, that's how I made it. And these, when these ostriches are born, they're the size of a small chicken. I mean, they're just big beasts. But he focuses here, even though they don't have much wisdom, verse 17, they, they just don't have uh, any kind of understanding that we would estimate or give approval to. Verse 18 says, She raises herself up on high and laughs at the horse and his rider. I mean, these ostriches can run. They have got some legs about them that they can run and outrun even the horse and his rider. The fastest land animal, 
this is God's creation, God's wonderful thing, is a cheetah. A cheetah can run 68, 70 miles per hour. It's pretty fast. And going down the highway, and the cheetah's keeping up with you down the highway. The ostrich is the fastest bird on land. Now, other birds in the, in the sky can, can move faster than this, but an ostrich can have an enduring run at 45 miles per hour like a long distance. You've seen some of this, maybe some of the nature shows and stuff. These ostriches running from a pack of wild animals, wild lions coming to chase and jumping on his back, and then start kicking. And this this ostrich is there laughing. And you think, you don't have much sense, do you, Mr. Ostrich, Miss Ostrich? But they can outrun a horse and his rider. A single stride can be 10 to 16 feet long. 10 to 16 feet from that pillar to about where this is. I mean, that's a long distance. One stride. Foot to foot, footfall to footfall. Now, oh, but racehorses, they can run pretty fast. Yeah, a racehorse can run 55, 55 miles per hour over a short distance. But that's a racehorse. What about your average horse? Uh, about 20 to 30 miles per hour with a rider for a short distance. Well, I guess they could sustain that. But, you know, running full gallop, 55. So they could out, outpace a an ostrich, but not your typical horse, not your typical situation. This ostrich raises herself up on high, just gets right up on there, and then just starts running like nothing, nobody's business, and laughs in a mocking kind of tone, as we saw uh, earlier about the um, the other beast. You're talking about laughing, the wild donkey laughing at the at the uh, tumult of the city, verse seven. So, wow, this ostrich, God made it for His own glory. They run, they run fast. They're just interesting birds. It's just weird shape, just amazing. And God loves them, delights them very much. Now, this next example, he's kind of mentioned it. Maybe some people regard it as kind of a good segue. He laughs at the horse and is right about, what about that horse? What if this animal is so mighty? Verse 19, do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His splendid snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his power. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at dread and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him. The flashing spear and javelin with shaking and rage, he races over the ground. He, off, he does not stand still at the sound of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he scents the battle from afar and the thunder of the commanders and the shouts of war. This is the longest depiction of an animal. God really, he likes horses. And he likes the other animals too, but he, he is just, wow, these are great and they're tremendous, and they're powerful, mighty, just glorious in their in their appearance. Uh, this is a, a picture of a, a statue, a sculpture in Sweden. It is a Syrian horse, racehorse, uh, stallion, whatever whatever it is. But you notice, wow, they're just this animal is just so uh, mighty. Uh, the, the mane on his neck is just uh, beautiful, glorious, uh, powerful, just blowing in the wind and just running and running. Do you make him leap like a locust? His splendid snorting is terrible. He is the one who just, wow, the power, the strength in his or her legs. He's talking about a war horse, a battle horse, especially. And so he's saying, do you make him leap? I mean, all your wisdom, all your power, do you teach him how to do that? Do you show him, hey, horsey, come and follow my example? You know, he doesn't do that. Job can't do that. His And one translator, one commentator talked about this. These descriptions, these statements about the horse are often, it's kind of like a staccato, kind of like a, a, a short statements, you know, this and that and this and that. He says, do you make him leap like the locust? His splendid snorting is terrible. And we kind of have to smooth things out. Hebrew is kind of a more straightforward language, but uh, we have to kind of 
add some verbs and different things to make it all flow together in a readable fashion. But it's just terrible, uh, splendid snorting. I think, wait a minute, how can it be the snorting of a, of a horse? How can it be splendid and terrible? How can it be horrible? Just terrifying. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his power. He goes out to meet the weapons. I mean, he's just so uh, engaged with the warfare. He's got might, he's got the beauty, he's got the leaping, he's got the snorting, he's, he's got the eagerness, the power that is just ready to go. These are, in the ancient world, these are the tanks. These are the, the advanced forces. These are the mighty things. Well, you got with the infantry, you got all these things, you got the archers, but then they got, you have the cavalry, right? The, the horse and his rider coming out and, and the celebrate all this. Often we see the horses, uh, both, well, in two different ways, two different configurations, if you don't mind. We see horse and rider, so a rider on the horse's back, and they go out with war and scimitars and swords and spears and javelins and, and arrows. Do you know stirrups won't, weren't invented until years after this, I mean, in centuries, millennia after this time, stirrups to help kind of situate you in the thing. Horse riders would have to hold on, and they do to a certain degree still, right, with their legs, right? You have to pinch the body of the horse. But think about how you do that without any other kind of stability, any stirrup below you. These riders were very trained, and they would fire arrows. I mean, just tremendous. They would fight on this in this way. But the horse, I mean, that's where it's at. The horse and his rider, yes, but the horse. The horse is so ready, so much. Verse 22, he laughs at dread. Again, mocking, scorn, nah, laughs at fear and, and all this. It's not dismayed, not turned back, not says, ah, can we do this another day? I'd like to go home and have some of that mash for my... No, he, he does not turn back from the sword. He's going after it. He is carrying his rider right into the fray. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and javelin. And this can either be what the rider is carrying, you know, all the all the paraphernalia of war, or all the other riders bringing in their weapons. And the horse says, I don't care. I'm, we're going in, and we're going to do this thing. And it, it is just, uh, verse 24, shaking. With shaking and rage, he races over the ground. He does not stand still at the sound of the trumpet, the trumpet that is calling them to war and advance and forward and all this. Verse 24 says, with shaking and rage, he races over the ground. That word races uh, talks about... Uh, He's just swallowing up the ground. He's just going forward. In fact, I think in Arab uh, culture, talks about a swallower, talking about a horse, is one just, just fast. He just goes after it and just eats up the ground and just, there he goes. As often as the trumpet sounds, this trumpet to call to war, he says, aha, now is my chance. I mean, got the devious little grin on the horse's mouth. I mean, okay, you're personifying it, I suppose. But that horse is ready to go. He sniffs. He scents the battle. He says, I know there's death today, and I'm going to be part of it. I don't care if I come back. I want part of this whole process. The thunder uh, of the commanders and the shout of war. He just rejoices in this. And you think, God, what's, what's this about? You, you like all this warfare and stuff? Yeah. Because in so doing, God is bringing justice to enemies. Because that's again, coming back to it, Job was accusing God, why do you let the wicked prosper so much? Why do you let them get away with it? God says, I give justice to whomever I want, whenever I want it. Job, you don't know. Let me tell you about the beasts that accomplish my justice. Let me tell you about the war horse who celebrates the fact that he can be part of my justice, my warfare, my commanding, and destruction of life for his own glory, God's own glory. Lastly, verse 26, he talks about the hawk and the eagle. Is it by your... 
understanding that the hawk soars stretching his wings toward the south. Is it, your, is it at your command that the eagle goes on high and raises his nest high? On the cliff he dwells and lodges upon the rocky crag, a fortress. From there he spies out food. His eyes see it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood. And where the slain are, there is he. So he's talking about the hawk and the eagle. These are both light, where they may be different species. They're all part of the same family or, or order of animals, kind of animals, the falcon kind. And so he's talking about the hawk, talking about an eagle, perhaps um, a golden eagle, or even a vulture um, can be included in that, that phrase, eagle. But he says, hey, Joe, did you teach the hawk how to soar? You know, how to get way up on, the, get catch those thermals. These hawks and the eagles especially like to catch the thermals and they rise up and they just kind of glide and they're kind of, from their wonderful wonderful surveillance platform, they say, I'm going to go get that little mouse. I see it. And it doesn't see me. It doesn't know where I am. But I'm going to go get it. And from a distance, that bird sees. Hey, Joe, did you teach him? You ever been up in the air, Joe? You ever been up there? Did you, did you teach him how to stretch his wings toward the south? This is the migratory path of these animals, these birds that are uh, going from north to south and south to north. One of the beautiful things about Israel is that it is often called the land between. It is a, a meeting point in so many different ways. I won't belabor the point, but in so many different ways, it is a bottleneck in traffic from Europe and Asia to Africa. And you want to avoid the desert, the Arabian desert to the east, you really don't want to go into the Mediterranean Sea, unless you have boats, of course, which not a lot of people do, and it's difficult to navigate. And so you go right through Israel. And in fact, even more specifically, there's a route on the east side, there's a route on the west side, and you pretty much avoid the hill country. And so the migration of people is very similar to the migration of birds. They won't typically, these birds anyway, they'll try to avoid the open sea and there are some birds that like to fly over and they do but these a lot of these birds fly right over the open land of israel and we're talking millions millions of birds and anywhere from 300 to 500 or more 600 800 it's kind of hard to count species of birds fly through israel and back and back and back bird watching is a tremendous occupation uh, or or hobby um avocation, there you go, in Israel, because you can see all kinds of birds. And God is saying, hey, did you teach those birds how to do that? Flying south when they need to go fly south and flying back north. Verse 27, did you command the eagle when he goes on high and raises his nest high? Did you teach him, hey, you really ought to have your nest way up high. You really ought to get up there and 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 use your intense, you know, keen vision and just maximize your, your um uh, your possibilities here. Hey, hey, Mr. Eagle, hey, Mr. Falcon, why don't you do that? Well, they knew because God programmed them. God said, you're going you're gonna to raise your nest right on high in the cliffs, uh, in the top of trees, and you, Job, had nothing to do with it. These eagles do this. They, verse 28, they, on the cliff he dwells and lodges. And he said, that's not very safe. How are they going to get up there? Well, they fly. Well, how are those birds going to get down? Those little baby birds they are going to, no, they're going to fly too. It's going to be fine because God cares for them. He meets their needs. On the cliff, on the rocky crag, it's a fortress. I mean, even the ibex, right? They would climb. They could climb up here. But they don't need little baby eagles. They're not gonna. They're gonna say, oh, and they turn around, and go back another way. They just nothing. There's nothing that's going to uh, annoy them or or destroy them there. But verse 29 says, from there, whether from his very great height of flying or from the height of his uh, um, nest, he sees. Or he spies out food. He says, okay, there's something I'd like to munch on. 
And these are also like the ravens, and well, sort of like the ravens. They, they ravens will eat anything. Eagles are more specific. They will go out and and prefer, I suppose. Well, I was going to say they prefer to kill something. I think anything is opportunistic. You see eagles eating kind of nasty things that are dead and they carry on, right? Already dead stuff. But these birds are going out and they say, "I'm going to go, I'm going to go kill that thing." He sees it from afar. It is said that eagles, falcons' eyes are just so much more powerful than our eyes. They are anywhere from four to five times as a number of uh, photoreceptors in their eyes. They are fixed, kind of like an owl's eyes. And so for them to, to, to move their eyeballs, they have to move their head. But hey, their head is very mobile. The neck is, is so, and they can, and they do this as they fly. They kind of zero in and they, and they do this wonderful, uh, way of, of tuning right in. They have more, uh, well, the photoreceptors provide more acuity of light or discernment of light. Also helps with the, um, Sensing uh, in the nighttime, so night vision is, is tremendous with them. They have larger pupils. Their eyes are similar to the ostrich, large in relation to their brain. They're fixed in their faces. They're a little bit longer, too, so they have kind of like telephoto capability, so they can zoom right in. Uh, it's said, and I'm going to get my memory right, what we can see clearly at like five feet away, they can see that same level of definition at 20 feet. So that like four times better and and just tremendous it's it, uh, and they even have two points of of uh, focus in their eyes in that they can see forward but they can also see kind of peripheral stuff as they're, they're flying they can keep their eye on this but also kind of look for other things going around and and position themselves just tremendous tremendous birds of prey these are by the way my favorite animals these raptors wow these are just tremendous he builds these things he split them up there they spy out food they see it from afar but what do they do they swoop down, catch that thing, and then they bring whatever they, they caught and feed it to their little babies. Verse 30, the young ones, his young ones, also suck up blood. It's okay, because that's how God made these animals to do. Where the slain are, there is he. And you think, that's good. I'm glad that the eagles, the vultures, all these kind of things, they eat on you know the dead animals. This word, where the slain are, this word slain, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I looked at every time that word is used in the Old Testament, and it talks about human dead. Where the slain humans are. That's where this vulture goes. Wait a minute, God, you're not supposed to feed the animals from us, for humans. God says, yeah, because I'm just, and I'm good, and I provide, even in my justice against evil humanity, a way to benefit my birds, because I care for them. I'm so much concerned about them. They can do their own thing, but I'm going to lead them to the where it is. Jesus even refers to this. Our Lord Jesus talking about this verse at the end times when judgment comes upon the world. Uh, verse uh, Matthew 24 and verse 27, 28. For just as the lightning comes from the east and appears even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is slain, as we would see it back in verse 30 of Job, there the vultures will gather. There will the eagles be, the 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 falcon family are going to come down and just devour the flesh. Same kind of reference in Luke 17, verse 37. Talking about these falcons are objects or agents of God's justice even. Okay, so we've seen all these different examples. God just delights them. God takes very much glory in these different animals and much more. We're going to see two more examples in the, in the next couple chapters. But he says these things for the benefit of Job to say, Job, you don't, ha you don't know what's going on. You don't even appreciate the fact that that in order for some of my creation to live, others must die. 
Now, that gets kind of complicated when we, when we kind of take things in our own hands. In order for me to live, you all have to die. You all have to just give up your life. Give me all your possessions because I've got to, I've got to live here. No, who decides who dies for the benefit of others? Well, thankfully, properly, it's God. God is the one who justly decides who's going to lay down their life for the brother. Wait a minute. That kind of reminds me of something. Didn't Jesus say something about that? No man has greater love than this. That a man lays down his life for his friend. What about okay? That's that's good. I'll you know I'll take a bullet or I'll step in the line of path of a of a train or whatever save you. But what about dying for enemies? Would you think that would be a prudent and appropriate? Why would somebody want to die for people who are just sworn enemies? Hate you. Hate everything about you. Don't want anything to do with you. Lay down your life for that person. Isn't that what our Lord Jesus did? Did not he become a corpse, slain, mocked, scorned, laughed at, all this, this horrible things for the benefit of Job, who put his faith in the Lord, and us also, who are so much saying, I don't have it. I don't have any understanding. I don't have any hope of life apart from Christ. Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried. He was raised again the third day. According to the scriptures, why? Because God's justice had to be satisfied. God accomplished salvation for us. We've seen this throughout from the prey of the lion that God provides. For the, for the lion to be benefited, something has to die. For us to be saved, something else has to die. And Jesus, he would, would go so far and gets kind of, kind of weird when he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have nothing to do with me. We think, God, what are you talking about this? This is weird. This is strange. This is carnivorous. No, unless you share in, unless you take it in as your necessary food, unless you say, that is my life. I've got no expectation, no hope apart from Christ. He is my life. His death is my death. I died in him. And in his resurrection, I am raised. When we recognize that, we say, God, you are just, but you're merciful. And Job is learning this lesson, and we're learning this lesson. God, pretty drastic circumstances to accomplish his good purposes in a fallen world. Sin is being accomplished or the remedy for sin is being accomplished, has been accomplished through our Lord Jesus Christ who died in the place of sinners. And he is the one who is coming again and will bring justice to those, his adversaries who refuse to bend their knee, to bow their knee to him. God is just, he is overall, he knows everything, he can do everything. Let's trust in him. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your truth, your message, this wonderful celebration of life and death even, and how it is part and parcel of your kingdom, your rule and reign in this age. We pray that we would rest in that. A lot of times we think, well, why do you have to eat my donkey or my sheep or my little goat? Well, just was your plan, your purpose. And yet you you are faithful. You are, you are conscious of every possible circumstance, every possible scenario. And the best thing is what you bring to pass because it brings you glory and it's for our good. We thank you particularly for the gift of your Son, a righteousness not our own, a life that is in Christ, a life that we could never live, a satisfying of your wrath that we could never satisfy in our own strength. I mean, yeah, we could die for our sins, but there's no hope after that. But Christ died for our sins, and you accepted his payment, not just for himself. He didn't have to die for his sins. He was righteous. But to die for sinners, enemies, traitors, rebels, and we can have life when we turn from our sins and trust and rejoice in Christ and covenant, promise to live for his honor and glory. We pray again that you'd save any here this morning that aren't trusting wholly in Christ, finding perfect justice and perfect 
mercy in our Lord Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.